fact, that's one of the problems with uh, the, the, the Tower of Babel and, and, the, and the city of Babylon is because instead of following the commandment of God to go forth, they decided to just stay in one area and God didn't intend for that to be. God never intended for his revival to be linked to just one city called Jerusalem. It was destined, even though they didn't know it then, it was destined to be a worldwide revival. And uh, so it's there. The, the, these are some of the things we've learned thus far, just to kind of uh, uh, jog your memory. We learned in, in the first part of First Peter that we are born again to a living hope. The hope that we have is not dead. The hope that we have is not, you know, something that, that's kind of archaic, but it's a living hope. And then, not only are we called to that living hope, but we are called to be holy. Why? Because He is holy. And then from there, we talked about Jesus Christ, the living cornerstone. And that you and I are a holy people built on that cornerstone. And then, what I kind of quoted just a minute ago, we are a chosen people. And then the last time we met, we talked a little bit about submission. Submission to authority, and then we talked about the, 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 the place and the way husbands and wives and that relationship works. And uh, I want to take you a little bit further. And uh, I don't know that we'll get through everything. I, I kind of feel like there's enough just in chapter 3 that we'll have to, to kind of end it there. But I, I want you to uh, get, me, get your Bibles out, and we're going, I don't do this very often, but I think it's important tonight. I want to read the entire chapter 3. And then we'll break it up. But I want you to see how it all fits together. And uh, so they'll follow on the screen behind me. Hopefully you're following in your Bibles. And hopefully if you didn't have a Bible Sunday, you brought one tonight. Because this would be a great time for you to write some notes therein. Uh, in, in chapter 3, actually I, I want to I start in verse 8. Because we, we ended with... Uh, the uh, wives and husbands last time. So let's start in verse 8 and we'll go to the end. And again, I'm reading English Standard Version. You're reading King James most likely. But, but it's, I promise you it says the same thing. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whosoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, uh, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject unto him. Now there's a lot in there. And, and I'm going to tell you, as I have, I have before, I think it's important to know uh, where it is. And, you know, honestly, 1 Peter is not my go-to book of the Bible. All right. If you say, Brandon, are you going to you know, get some devotional reading in the Bible? I don't turn to 1 Peter. Uh, so, so when I come to these places that I, I don't use often, I mean, I, I've got a great knowledge of the you know, chosen generation part. I think I have a good handle on the wives and husbands part. Uh, I, I, I've appreciated that teaching throughout the years, and especially... Uh, as my wife and I celebrate, I think, 17 years this year. You know, I, I've come to understand and appreciate what the Bible has to say about family relations, but, you know, I don't think much about this. And so, uh, in doing so, I, I, I use some help 
to, to gain insight in this. And right now, one of my favorite commentaries, and I, you've heard me say it, is the Bible Exposition Commentary. And, and one of the things I like about uh, Warren Wearsby is his ability to, to put things in, in, in groups. So just, just for example, Acts 2.38, we read Acts 2.38. If you read Warren Wearsby, he would tell you that Acts 2.38 tells you you have to do three things. And then he says, number one, repent. Number two, be baptized. Number three, receive the Holy Ghost. I like those groupings. And that helps me see it. And so Warren Wearsby does that. So if you hear me uh, speak on some groupings tonight, uh, unfortunately, that's, that's not my, my uh, thoughts. I, I had to learn it myself. But I, I want to take it and I want to give it to you. Because one thing you're going to note when you begin to study uh, the book of, of 1 Peter, and, and I'm going to do my best. Who, who's back there? I think it's Brother Andy. I'm going to do my best, Brother Andy, to kind of uh, uh, keep you where I'm at. But I need you to just go ahead and put up chapter 3, verse 8. Just leave that up, and I'll try to, you know, give you that old, uh, those of you who are young won't remember this, but those of you that are my age or older, you know, those microfish things you used to watch in school. And when it would come, you'd go, beep. You know, that's, I'm, I'll do my best, Andy, to, to do that. But, um, but one, of the, one of the reoccurring themes in the book of, of the, that the books that Peter has written is love. And, and I think it's important not only that God loved us and all of us today would be thankful and be a, a recipient of that thank you God for loving us but that we should love others and one of the things that I saw in learning as I begin to study this is I begin to put the character and the person of Peter next to the words that he spoke and when you do that you find some interesting things when you begin to put what somebody is saying to, and combine it to what they've gone through, it makes those words speak so much more. And Peter had to learn this lesson. And I will tell you, Peter was thankful that the Lord was patient with him. If anybody could, could stand up and say, I'm so thankful he didn't throw the clay away, Peter was one of those that could say that. That Jesus didn't get, get tired of me. And so the first thing we need to understand is you need to have, it, it starts with this, you need to love God's people. Look at those around you. Not necessarily to your wife, although you better love your wife or your husband, but look around you. Find someone that's not, you're not related to and say, I need to love you. Some of you think that's weird. Some of you didn't like saying that, but let me help you out. If you can't love those that are in this church, those that have experienced the grace of God like you've experienced, those that have walked where you've walked, if you can't love them, how in the world are you ever going to love anybody else? And so the Bible, the Bible uses this word, finally, finally. This, this love, it's, it's, it's evidenced by a a unity of mind, and, and you, you saw that there, uh, and, and now you see it here in the King James, a unity of mind. Now watch this. Unity in this understanding does not mean we're a bunch of lemmings that just do everything that everybody else does. Being unified does not mean we are carbon copies. Unified does not mean we are clones. But instead, uniformity mean, or I'm sorry, unity means this. And I'm going to quote, unity means cooperation in the midst of diversity. The best way to describe this in the Bible's chock full of these is our body is unified. But it's not all the same. If I'm going to take a step, I'm so thankful that my whole body is not just a foot because it would never get anywhere. But first off, my brain has to fire up and, and, and start shooting messages down the neural pathways. You're going to take a step. And then that's got to go all the way down. It's got to activate muscles all, long before it hits the foot. It's activating muscles, and they are working together for us to take a step. And so first off, love happens when the body of Christ, as diverse as it is, works in unity. We're all different. We all... We all uh, uh, have our own paths. We all have our own uh, uh, histories. We all have our own idiosyncrasies. But we can love and work together. And and I I skipped over this. I got I got sidetracked. I meant to start by saying the word finally. The word finally means to sum it all up. 
So Peter is winding down, and he still has a, a couple more chapters, but he's starting to wind down his verse, his, his book. And he says, and if you read Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10, you would find that the whole of the law is summed up in love. So is all of our relationships. Not just boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife relationships, but everything about how we relate to others needs to be fulfilled in love. So first off, love, you evidence that by the unity of mind, by working together to cooperate, to work together as the body of Christ works together. The next one is, is compassion. Compassion. Now, one of the things I've enjoyed about this is that sometimes we have preconceived ideas of what these words mean. And it's important to understand what it, what it really says. Compassion is a sincere feeling for and with the needs of others. One of the words that, that can be used in compassion, in fact, it's seen here in the English Standard Version, and they did this on purpose, is the word sympathy. Our English word sympathy comes from the way that, that the, the, the writers got the word compassion. Romans 12 says this, You and I, we need to share in both the joy and in the trials. If one of you gets a raise at work, I want to celebrate with you and say, thank God he's providing for you. I don't get bitter about that. I can't get bitter that God has blessed you. But likewise, I, I, I don't want you to forget about me when I'm going through a trial. It's compassion. It's feelings for and feelings with. And, and 1 Peter teaches us over and over. In fact, I think there's four times in the book of 1 Peter that it tells us we are brothers and sisters in the same family. And if the body, if the family goes through a joyous occasion or goes through a trial, it affects all of us. And I would like to, to, to take this to the next level. And this is a word we don't use a lot. And if we do use it, we use it in a negative manner. We use this word, uh, uh, love, it reveals itself in pity. When's the last time you thought that pity was a good thing? But see, this is something that we need to change. Pity is actually a very good thing. Pity means a tenderness of heart toward others. Now, I will tell you that when Peter is writing this and they're in the middle of the Roman Empire, pity was not a, a, a quality that was, that was lauded. In fact, if you said, I, am, I have a tenderness of heart for someone, if I have compassions, they would have said, you're weak. And the more I live in this world today, the more I see very close parallels with the, the Roman Empire. In the debauchery, in the sinfulness, in the, in the uncaring attitudes that go forth, in the lack of pity, or the fact that we've turned pity into a bad word. No, I, I think it's important that we show love through a tenderness of heart. And, and, and to be honest, we, we've had enough bumps and bruises on our walk of life and you turn on the news and you get just deluged with all this bad stuff and it's easy to become calloused. It's easy to, to not feel that tenderness to anybody. It's easy to get cynical. Watch this. It's easy to say they deserve that. And you know what? They might. The Bible says what measure of judgment you use will be the same measure of judgment that's used on you. And, and so it's, it's very important that we cultivate this compassion, that we cultivate this pity, this tenderness of heart, and, and we have to show others that we don't rejoice when they fall. We don't rejoice when, they, when, when, when they, something bad is happening because brotherly love is important. The next one is to be courteous. Be courteous. Now, most, most of us would kind of maybe use that in, in thoughts of, you know, acting like a gentleman or acting like a lady. But again, a, a better translation, and you see it uh, here a little bit, is to have a humble mind or to be humbly minded. It, 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 for, for exa courtesy, 
Now, now, if you're just taught courtesy and, and it just becomes something you have to do, for example, I remember vividly, it's amazing how things in your, in your childhood stick in your mind and they're just vivid. I remember, I, I, we, I, we were probably in Dillard's or Famous Bar, that was one of those places mom drug us to, but I remember going up an escalator and I, don't, I, I, I think I was under the age of 11 and I remember my mom saying something and I said, yeah or no, and instantly, you know, that, that thump, and she said, yes what, or no what, and I said, yes ma'am. And I remember vividly, some lady right there says, you mean to tell me you make your kids say yes ma'am and no ma'am? And my mom in that southern uh, gentle nature said, why yes we do ma'am. <laughs> but, but first off, I will tell you this, if you're just made to say that and you sound courteous, you can sound courteous but not be courteous. So it's more than just what you say. It, it emanates from a humble mind. And what that means is a humble person puts others first. A humble person puts others first. Uh, tur- turn with me for a moment. I, I want you to, to, to turn with me to the book of Matthew uh, chapter 11. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this very quickly. But I, I want to just show you an example of someone that's not humbly minded. Except that whatever I wrote isn't there. So hold on a second. I love when I do that. Well, lest I stay here forever and a day trying to figure out where in the world I was reading. But um, maybe Luke 11? That's where I was reading. Yeah, Luke 11. That's where I was reading. Let's go to Luke 11. Sorry, Brother Andy. Try Luke 11 and and go to verse 37. Jesus was speaking. A Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and he went and reclined at a table. They're eating. The Pharisee is astonished that Jesus did not first wash his hands before eating. And and while that may not be the greatest hygiene, uh, instead of saying, you know, Jesus, you ought not eat with dirty hands. I don't want you to get sick. They turned it, and and the, the Pharisee, you know, probably really began to make it a spiritual issue. And the Lord said unto him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, don't you know that he that made the outside makes the inside also? And this is what he says, But woe to you Pharisees, verse uh, 42. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe on the mint and the rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you should have done without neglecting the others. And here's the key. This is is the opposite of being humble-minded. Opposite of being courteous. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, but woe to you for you're like an unmarked grave and people walk over them without knowing. One of the things that, that, that as I read First Peter, this is what came to my mind. How many of you remember the story of the Pharisee praying and the poor man praying? And the Pharisee's over in the synagogue and he's got his head lifted and he's puffed up. And, and, and read the Bible. It, and, and again, maybe I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said. Lord, I am so thankful you made me me and not like this wretch over here. Meanwhile, over on the other side, you've got this poor broken shell of a man that can't even lift his head knowing he's sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he's saying, Lord, I don't deserve anything, but I'm thankful for your mercy. We have to be careful that we don't become Pharisees in our, 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 our actions toward one another. A humble, to be humbly minded, to be courteous, is to put others first. Put others first. Then this one's really hard. I, I, I know we, we've hopefully we've learned something new or at least let it uh, uh, sink in. But this next one's really hard because not only does the Bible say that we're to, you know, have brotherly love and all of that, but then verse 9 and it goes on. Now it tells us not only should we love God's people, not only should we love the ones that are around us right now, but we got to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, around verse 43 or so, Jesus said, you know, I've come to tell you, love your enemies. Now, that's hard for you and I. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that, that some of you probably have a legitimate enemy in your life. Someone that has persecuted you. But most of us probably don't have that. 
But remember who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to those who have ran for their lives out of Jerusalem because people were going to put them to death. They probably were even running from Saul, Paul. Remember Paul that, that breathed out slaughters and threatenings and put him in jail? They were running from Paul. They were running from others. They were running from some of the, the, the things of Rome. And so now Peter is reminding them what, what the Lord said in Matthew. He said, love your enemies. Love the one that stole your daughter, stole your husband, put him in jail. Maybe he died on a cross because they were doing that. Jesus wasn't the only one that died on a cross. Peter himself died on a cross upside down though. But, so this was happening and he says, love your enemies. Later on, Peter's going to warn them that what they have faced was bad, but there was going to be even worse persecution probably coming towards the church. But even in that, love your enemies. Rather than me reading it, let me just kind of show you. You know, it says, don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but bless so that you might obtain a blessing. Here's one of those groupings that Warren Wearsby is so good at. Here in life, you have three choices. Look at your neighbor and say, I have three choices. These three choices will determine how you live. Number one, you can return evil for good. That's the satanic level. Okay, that's when you are mean even when the person is as nice as they can be to you. That's, that's Satan. Most of us, in fact, if any of you are like that, please come and tell me. Number one, so I can be, pray for you. Number two, I can stay far away from you. I don't think any of us here have a problem with that one. We give evil when good is, is there. But the human level is number two. The human level is we return good for good, we return evil for evil. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. If you help me, I'll help you. That's the human level. But the third is what Peter is bringing us to. The third one is the divine level. When I can return good for evil. Now, the Lord, the, the Lord becomes the example for this right here. It, it, it begins to say, Christ suffered. And, and my goodness, if anybody could have called down fire from heaven. See, I've told you this before. It's a good thing I'm not God. It's a good thing I'm not Zeus. It's a good thing I'm not any of those, you know, meta-gods that the people were. Because if I had the power to shoot lightning bolts... And you mess with me? Because that's human nature, right? Remember, yes, Jesus was fully God. He was God manifest in the flesh. But you have to remember, and you got to never let it escape your mind, that Jesus was fully human. Which meant people made fun of him, people laughed at him. But the thing about it, if anybody could have been on the cross and called down angels, Jesus could have. If anybody could have said, you making fun of me? <laughs> Think about it. But because of that, Jesus becomes our supreme example. It's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That's justice. <clears throat> and, and we have to leave that justice to the Lord. We have to leave that justice to him. Instead, we, you and I, we need to operate on the basis of mercy because God was merciful to me. And whom much has been given, much should be required. Now some of you, I'll be, you want me to be brutally honest? Some of you have hurt me before. It's natural. I've had my feelings hurt. And I remember all the times that I failed him. And I remember all the times that I've, I've, I've purposely failed him. Because that's what sin is. Sin is not an accident. Sin is a purposeful uh, uh, attempt. And I realized that he didn't throw me out and he still loves me. And so I, I look at, at the relationships that I have. And I have to realize that Jesus had mercy on me. And so I want to operate that. Mercy. Now watch this. Remember I told you when you can set the character of somebody with the words of somebody? Peter's pinning this. What do you think one of the thoughts might have been in his mind? The time that, that Judas came and kissed Jesus on the cheek. And they, they grabbed Jesus to take him away. And what did Peter do? Pulled out a sword, 
meaning to whack off whoever was closest, ended up whacking off the ear of the guy, and, and now Peter is writing, you don't repay evil for evil. Mercy. And then Peter has to realize all of the times that he's failed and, and God still loved him. Paul could have wrote the same thing, and he, and he did in, in some way, shape. You know, Paul, when he was an unconverted teacher, rabbi, Pharisee, he, he, he opposed the church in every possible way, but when he, when he became a Christian, he, he didn't use those weapons anymore. In fact, there were times that he willingly went to a place knowing he was probably going to get thrown in prison. It was. Then we've got to be reminded of our calling as a Christian. See, this is, it's hard for us to love our enemies. I'll be honest with that. It's very hard for us to love our enemies. But when you're reminded of the calling that you have as a Christian, it's there. Uh, Turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter uh, 24 verse 15 says this. Uh, Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do, Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumbles and climbs in times of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Let the Lord, or lest the Lord seize it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Don't be envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. See, you and I were called to be Christians. We're called to be like Christ. And if Christ is, 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 is transfixed on that rugged cross and he's in the most agonizing pain that, that almost a human body could ever go through, if you study what crucifixion did to the body, you would find that it was an agonizing, painful death. And yet on the cross, it was not God that spoke. It was a human, it was a, a, a way of, of, of making up in his mind, I will love mine enemies. There was nothing divine about these words. It was him saying that my humanity chooses to love my enemy. And what did he say transfixed there in agonizing pain? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the calling that you and I have as a Christian. We love our enemies. We're going to do them good. You don't have to go buy them a gift certificate when they hurt you. But we don't repay evil for evil. And we're called to inherit a blessing. Somebody said it this way, the persecutions that we experience on earth only adds to our blessed inheritance of glory in heaven someday. But when you repay good for evil, when you love your enemies, you also get a blessing today today the first thing we do is we love one another the second thing we do is we love our enemies but I want you to look at at, at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 for whosoever desires to love life this is one that caught me off guard and, and I'll admit I had to learn this one myself we love, we love one another we love our enemies And you need to love life. The the news that these Christians had in the, you know, in that first century church was not always good. They had left homes, they had left family, they were persecuted, they they were being put in prison. I mean, it's as bad as it could get. And just because there is... Uh, pending uh, or impending persecution you shouldn't give up on life just because a trial is coming your way don't give up on life and so I want to read and, and this I will th- this comes from from Warren Wiersbe I the way he wrote this out just it spoke to me first you must deliberately decide to love life he who wills Whosoever desires to love life. 
This is the opposite of what you see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is written most likely by, by King Solomon. And, and, and if you read Ecclesiastes, it, it's the wisest man in the world just kind of saying, I, I, I was going to just try to find joy and happiness in anything. And, I mean, he did it all. He, he drank himself half silly. He, he jumped into uh, relationships and at the end, you know, but, but he makes this statement in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 17 and, and, and I, I hear it a lot today and I even hear it a lot in the church. He says, therefore I hated life. And then you go a little further, he says, for it's all vanity and vexation of the spirit. I'm amazed and, and, and the, the, as I grow and as I mature and as I walk in life's journey a little bit further, I'm amazed at how many people don't love life. And you say, well, pastor, isn't that kind of uh, psychological mumbo-jumbo? It might be, except the Word of God says it. So if the Word of God says it, I think there's something to it. And maybe that's one of the problems. We've thrown out a lot of times psychology, and we've thrown out a lot of mental health, and we've thrown that out, and we've tried to tell people that, you know, if, if you've got the Holy Ghost, you're never going to have depression, you're never going to have this. And, and we've kind of just ignored all of that. But the more I read the Bible, the more I realize God's is just as much concerned about my physical health as he is my mental health. And one of the ways you do this is love life. Now, here's, here's maybe this will help you out. Again, here's one of those groupings. There's, there's three things that you can do. Remember I showed you three things and how you live your life. You can repay evil for good. You can repay good for good, evil for evil, or you can pay good for evil. You with me? Here's three more ways you can live life. You can endure life. You can make it a burden. You live your life just as if it's the worst thing in the entire world. Everything just vexes you. Everything hurts you, and, and you, you endure life. You slog through it. It's like uh, uh, if, you, if you've ever put on rubber boots and walked through a really muddy place, and that mud and that clay just keeps sucking onto the boots until you're literally picking up 25 pounds. You're just slogging through life. There's no joy. There's no love. There's no happiness. You're just counting the days that you breathe your last. Or you can escape life. I don't mean go commit suicide. What I mean by that is you just do everything you can to forget your living. You, that, that's where addictions come in. That's where hobbies, you just throw yourself into a hobby and forget the world and, and what you're living in. And you escape it as if you're running from a battle. Or you can do the third, which is what Peter said. You can enjoy life because God is in control. This is not, and, and I mean this, this is not an a, a unrealistic measure. This is not just some motivational speaker with one of those cool little microphones that sticks on the side of his mouth that, that gets all pumped, you know, pumps you all up. This is not that. This is saying, even if a trial comes, God is in control. I may not like the trial. I may not like what I'm going through. It may be even my fault, but I know that he's with me and he's never going to leave me and he's never going to forsake me. And because of that, I can love my life. Second thing, this is a little bit harder. Now, now he's uh, th this. I don't know how your Bible breaks this up, but my Bible, when it when it quotes from other places in the Word of God, it puts it into a indented uh, uh, format. And so I know in, in in this Bible that I have, I know if they're quoting from maybe you know the Old Testament or somewhere else. Well, right now, what we're talking about, he who desires to love life and see good days, this is from Psalms chapter thirty-four, verse twelve through sixteen, almost word for word. So, this is how you, 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 you love life. Well, well, the next thing, and this one, a little bit harder. <clears throat> Control your tongue. Control your tongue. Did you know that most of the problems in our life are caused by the wrong words spoken in the wrong spirit? I can look at almost every relationship crisis and almost every one will have wrong words spoken at a wrong time and wrong motives. I've heard people say this often, and, and, and Warren Wiersbe does too, but I've, I've heard people say this very often. You need to read James 3 on a regular basis, and you need to read Psalms 141 verse 3 uh, almost daily. Just remember, control your tongue. So, I, 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 first off, let, let's put the character with the, with the statement. 
Peter knows what he's talking about. Peter knows full well what, what wrong speech does. Remember this conversation? Jesus, you're never going to die. Sounds good, right? Wrong time to say it. What did Jesus? Jesus turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter wanted to change the course of what God's plan for humanity was. How about this one? Uh, uh, aren't you one of those, those people that follow Jesus? No. Lie. Yeah, yeah, you, you're one of those Galileans. The way you dress, the way you speak, you're one of those Galileans. Shut up, you idiot. I'm not. Now you're being mean and you're lying. And then it gets on, and I can't take it any further here, but it gets on to where he's cussing and cursing and, you know, probably using the Lord's name in vain. And, and Peter knew what he was talking about. Um, I, I love, and you've heard me say it, and I will keep saying it because I'm, I'm trying to lead by example in case you haven't gathered that. The reason I keep telling you about reading the Bible and bringing your Bibles, I'm trying to lead by example. Not, not to make myself any greater, but I just think a good leader ought to do that. I can't expect you to read the Bible if I'm not reading the Bible. But I, I want you to... I want you to do with me. This is why I love the English Standard Version that I've been using. Turn with me to Proverbs, or, or at least listen to me. Maybe you don't want to turn that fast. Proverbs 13 and 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips come to ruin. Pretty powerful statement, right? Or, one of my favorites, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2. You ready for this one? A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Be careful what you say. A fool's mouth is his ruin. His lips are a snare to his soul. And you could keep, keep reading that. Uh, uh, look at, look at um, Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 23 says, Whoever keeps his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Again, one of the greatest pieces of advice my mother ever told me, and I, I don't always follow it, but one of the greatest pieces of advice my mom ever told me was, Brandon, if you'd keep your mouth shut 98% of the time, you wouldn't get a spanking and you wouldn't get in trouble. Because I can show you where almost every time in my life that I got in trouble is because of my mouth. Every time I've lost relationships and friends and, and, and cause chaos and cause friction. It's been because of my mouth. So the second thing you got to do is you got to control your tongue. The third thing you got to do according to, to what Peter is talking about there in Psalms 34 is you've got to turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue, or, or, or let's, let's start with that. Third, you must do good and hate evil. <clears throat> that old English word askew, which I think is what the King James uses. I think it says askew evil. That's more than just avoid. It means to avoid something because you despise it and you loathe it. It's not enough for you just to say, I don't want to sin because sin is wrong. But you ought to run away as fast as you can from anything that looks like sin because you hate sin. It ought to be like turning two magnets. I think, I think it's similar poles is what you do. You turn it, you know, turn the magnets and they'll, they'll bounce off each other. That's how it needs to be with you in sin. You don't even get close to it. It repels you. Do good. Hate evil. And then finally, you've got to seek peace and pursue peace. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Other places say that if you go out and seek trouble, guess what? You're going to find it. I've never met someone that wasn't looking for a fight that didn't find one. It's amazing how that works you got to seek peace. Seek peace. You've got to pursue peace. No drama. No drama zone. I'm not looking to cause chaos. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for the wrong. I'm not looking for the hurt. I'm not looking for the offense. I'm looking for the peace. If I get into a conflict, I'm not looking for the, the fight. I'm looking for the peace. Uh, uh, Romans, Paul says this, If it be possible... As much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. Work for peace. Work for peace. A good day 
And, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to directly quote from Warren. A good day is a believer who loves life, not because he's pampered and sheltered, but because he experiences God's help and the blessings because of life's problems and trials. It's a day in which he magnifies the Lord, a day in which he experiences answers to prayer and tastes the goodness of God and senses the nearness of God. Now, what we were reading with Psalms 34, it'd be a good thing, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but it'd be a good thing for you to go home and read Psalms 34. And the next time you're having a bad day, the next time you want to hate life, the next time you feel like you're just ready to give it up, go read Psalms 34 and you might find that instead you're having a really good day, even though the circumstances dictates it differently. I'm going to skip over this next one pretty quickly. I, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, on it, but, but uh, I, I want to just, just pull. It, it's basically, see, Peter, Peter can't, can't go five minutes without telling you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just, it's, it's, it's impossible. He has to throw in the fact that Jesus died and was buried and resurrected and the fact that because of that we're saved. And so in doing so, this next little part of, of what's going to happen is, is him doing that. But one of the things I want to read is, uh, is uh, let's look at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And here's where I want you just to kind of catch. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What, what Peter begins to say is, even if you're in the middle of a crisis, even if you're in the middle of a problem or a situation, let it be your opportunity to witness. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer. We, we use the word apology, and, and if I say make an apology, most likely you would say, I'm sorry. That's not the truest form of what an apology is. In fact, the apology, it, it, it rather means a defense presented in court. In fact, the word apologetics is a, a branch of theology that deals with the defending or the reasoned defense of the faith. And so, when if you're, a, again, using the word apologetic, it doesn't mean I'm sorry. An, an apology means to try to explain why you did what you did. A defense in court. Now, sometimes just because you're an idiot. Sometimes you got to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But sometimes it was a misunderstanding. And let me explain why I did what I did. And so th this word apology means here it's, it's to make a defense of it. And so you need to be able to, and this is what I love about talking to some of you, and, and I believe more of you do this, but have you ever talked to someone that on paper have every reason to be depressed and, and, and to go seek, you know, take a bunch of medicine and just kind of go off into la-la land and they're in the middle of a huge problem and yet when you talk to them, they say, yeah, I know I'm dealing with this, but God's in control. I, I know I'm going through this, but God is going to bring me out. What Peter was trying to tell him that is in the midst uh, of a hopeless situation, you ought to still be able to say, I may not know why or where or what I'm going through, but I've got a hope in Jesus Christ and then you begin to tell people why you have a hope in Christ. See, here's what you need to understand. And, and man, I wish, I wish I could go back in time and bring Peter here and ask him to rewrite and ask Paul to rewrite their, their, their epistles in, in you know, 2018. So let me tell you what I think he would say. Are you ready? This is, this is 2018 era Paul. When you're having a bad day, don't get on Facebook and tell everybody about how awful your life is. But instead, say, even though things are, 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 are hurting, and even though I'm hurting, and, and I look at Brother Brian back there, and as I was saying some of the things, I saw the hand and the head nod, and, 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 and I look at that and, and deal with some diagnoses that come in. But yet when you talk, even if he wasn't feeling good, he would say, but God has it. God's in control. That's what Peter is trying to say. You need to be able in everything you do Create an opportunity, even in the midst of a problem, create an opportunity to witness and say, I've got hope and I've got faith. And if you'll learn to do that, the unbelievers around you will sit up and take notice. 
they'll start asking, how in the world are you handling this? I could never handle it the way you handle it. You're right, but I got a secret weapon up my sleeve. Jesus Christ lives in here. And you begin to tell it, and you begin to talk about it. And again, I, I, you, you don't do it in arrogance and a know-it-all attitude. The Bible says do it in meekness and fear, respect. You gotta, you gotta love people. It's, it's not a, you're not making an argument. You're not trying to hurt people. You're not trying to, you know, make them feel bad. It's just, just love them. I'm, I'm running out of time, but uh, <clears throat> look at the story of Joseph. Every time Joseph turned around, something bad was happening. He's thrown in a pit, thrown in Potiphar's house, thrown in prison. But he allowed each one of those crises to be a testimony. And, and he was there. Um, but there's this word here in, in verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The word conscience, it, it, it comes from two words. The, the, the first word, the, let, me, let me get back. The first word is, uh, well, I lost my page. Uh, we'll get there here in a moment. Well, it means with knowledge. I don't know why I can't find my, my, my note that I wrote down. But it means with knowledge. If you break that word down, it means with knowledge. It means, it means living your life and, and knowing what's going on. And that, that, that conscience that you have, somebody described it this way. Somebody described it that... Your conscience is, is like having a window. And that window is God's word. And that window sh shines God's word into your heart and lets you know through God's word, are you doing stuff right? Are you doing stuff wrong? Does that make sense? So we know God's word can't change. God's word's right here. God's word is shining. God's word is speaking. But our conscience is what allows God's word to speak to us. And so if we dirty up that window... God's word doesn't shine as bright and we'll miss things. And so you've got to be careful. You know, I, I've had people tell me and they were, they were smack, bad, uh, you know, smack doing some bad stuff and, 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 and yet they said, oh, my conscience is clean. Well, the Bible says you can be turned over to a reprobate mind. But what that means is you've allowed that window to get so dirty you can't even see what the word of God says. But, but here you go and, and you're letting it. And so you need to make sure that when you are going through life and you're in these trials and you're in these crises, you need to make sure that you have a good conscience. And the only way you do that is to make sure your heart is clean and to make sure you are ready to, to see the word of God so that you would know, am I straying or am I walking with him? Am I doing it right? Am I following his word? And then he goes on, and uh, I'm, I'm almost done. In fact, Sister Audrey, I'll let you come and play. That way people have hope that I'm, I'm going to get done pretty quickly. I understand hope. But like I said, Peter can't help but start talking about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in it, he throws this out, and we would be bereft. I don't think I need to go over the gospel. Y'all understand that. But I think we'd be bereft to, to forget this. But he starts to talk about the, the, like the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared and only a few went in. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a, a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. P Peter was just trying to remind you that, that just because you get wet doesn't save you. He was reminding you that, that when you're baptized in Jesus' name, that water, and I, I've told people this, that's just O'Fallon water. There's nothing special about that water. We don't pray over that water. It's not holy water. But it's the vehicle that brings you into the grace and the mercy and the, the atonement of Jesus Christ's sacrifice in the blood. And so Peter was just kind of, he, he, he was, sometimes in these letters they, they, they get off on tangents and they go here and, you know, it's just kind of Peter has so much he wants to say and he's talked to you about how to live, but then he just, he just has to throw in the gospel. He has to throw in the fact. But, but he says that if you'll, if you'll go through those waters of baptism, that's what, 
allows the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. And you want a clean window so the conscious works? Get baptized for the remission of sin. And if you do that, you can handle it. No matter what happens in your life, you can can walk with Him. You can can trust Him. When circumstances come, you you can, with a good conscience, say, I'm going to... I'm going to walk with God. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm not going to repay good for good. I've experienced the mercy of God. I've experienced the grace of God. I want you to stand. We're, we're not going to get much, much past into this. Uh, ne- next week, or, or actually it won't be next week, uh, but when we get back to this, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, the stewardship of God's grace that we have. That, that we're going to face circumstance and what are we going to do and how do, we, how do we live when people are coming against us and the church is being persecuted and the suffering that we have as Christians and we'll, we'll get to that. But I, I hope somewhere in, in this I've given you some things to think about about how you live your life. How, how am I going to live my life? Mainly because you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're called to be an epistle even. You're a letter that those around you read and they get to see God at work in you. Long before they read the Bible, long before they understand what God has done, they see God's work in your life. And I will tell you that I I have seen many times the gospel be reduced, and I'm walking carefully, and hopefully I'll explain what I'm trying to say, but I've seen so many times the gospel rendered useless by the epistle of somebody's life because they hated life I mean if if I, I love food I know a lot of you like food I'm not very picky about what it eats except green bean casserole sister Morgan wherever you are I don't, I don't do that stuff but if you tell me if you come up to me and say Brandon you need to try this restaurant it is awesome chances are I'm going to go try that restaurant But if you come and say, yeah, we went to this restaurant, food was really good, but I hated the service, and I didn't like this, and I didn't like that, I'm probably not going to go try it. And if you live your life in such a way that that it puts off people, they're never going to try Christ. And most people are not watching to see how you handle the good. They're watching to see how you handle the crises and the adversity. Because that's the true measure. They're not looking to serve God because God's this incredible blesser that just throws money your way. That's probably not why they're looking to serve God. But you go through a trial, you go through a circumstance, you go through a hard place, and you do the things we talked about and Peter talks about, then all of a sudden they go, what is it about you that lets you walk with your head out of you know, rising above the waters and the flood? I want what you have. And then you begin to tell them, well, let me tell you, I once was lost. I once was an alcoholic. I once was a sinner. But Jesus saved me. And look at the change. Oh, what a change in my life. I wonder if you could lift your hands across this place. Would you just, I need you to respond to the word. I need somewhere for you to take what's been said. I need you to talk to God. I need you to say, God, this is what I need to work on. This is where I'm at. Father, I pray that you would let me rise above it. I pray that you would let me love one another and love my brothers and love my 